In today's episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast, Chris and I imagine what if Stanley created a DC universe? Prepare for a deep dive into Stanley's work at DC Comics. Ladies and gentle people, welcome back to another installment of the Nerd Byword Podcast, the only podcast that is diligently working on a sequel to the comic book masterpiece Trouble. We're calling it Double Trouble Mayday. But before we uh, try anything like that, let's go ahead and talk about what we're actually doing today. We are diving into Just Imagine Stan Lee creating the DC Universe. We're going to be looking at three issues where Stan Lee... The man of Marvel himself reimagines some DC superheroes, specifically Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. Before we dive into that, though, Chris, it's time for... Nerd News! What's cooking? Uh, Well, uh, one of... Both of our favorite features, Nintendo Switch Online, could soon be getting a huge bolstering in its library. Uh, Website Kotaku is reporting that uh, Game Boy games should be coming soon to Nintendo Switch Online, which is a great value. A subscription costs uh, just $4 a month or $20 a year. Um, features a lot of NES and SNES favorites like Super Metroid, Super Mario World, Legend of Zelda, Link to the Past. Um, But on an episode of Nate the Hate podcast, uh, it really started the rumors that Game Boy games uh, would be coming soon to the service. And it seems like the natural next step. Now with games like Pokemon Red and Blue and, and other favorites that are really staples of that entire generation of gaming, um, this has me really psyched. So um, a lot of stuff with Game Boy, I personally, I missed out on. So getting a chance to play with this is kind of like almost like going back in time and, and getting a redo uh, to play some of these games that I missed out on. Dave, you got me hooked on the Switch Online. What are your thoughts on this? I'm actually really excited about this. And before I talk too much about this story in particular, I just want to say that I'm super annoyed, just super annoyed by Nintendo that they just cannot get their act together for something as simple as their online features. For crying out loud, guys, Nintendo has one of the deepest libraries of fantastic games going back decades. How is it that we only have a handful of NES and SNES games to access on Nintendo Switch Online. I mean, they're not exactly offering features like the eShop that we used to have where you can buy some retro games. Why does this sucker not have N64 support? Why does it not have GameCube support? It absolutely certainly could run those games without a problem on Switch. I really believe that Nintendo Switch Online just based on the strength of first-party titles that Nintendo has created over the years. Could be a service that could rival something like Game Pass, just for, you know, value and bang for your buck. 
but instead they're taking years. I mean, the service has been what now around for about three years, and they're just now talking about Game Boy and Game Boy Color games. Like, where's the Game Boy Advance in this? You can't tell me they can't figure out how to make DS and 3DS games run on this thing. I just don't understand what the holdup is here. So yeah, am I excited about having access to Game Boy and Game Boy Color games? Certainly. The Nintendo Game Boy in particular was my very first uh, console, really. And I absolutely adored this thing. I carried it with me everywhere, and it has fantastic games. You know, Zelda Link's Awakening, Super Mario Land 1 and 2, and 3, which was the first uh, Wario game, which is an absolute blast all the original Pokemon games. Uh, The Game Boy Color uh, actually had the very first Shantae game, and long-time listeners know I absolutely adore the Shantae series. You know, it's absolutely fantastic little series of games, and the very first one was a Game Boy Color game. So if, if Nintendo can, you know, reach down deep... And pull out not just you know their first party stuff, but also some of the third party stuff that has famously been you know basically unavailable and impossible to play for decades now. I mean, you know, th- there's a lot to be said for that. I, I, you know, it's again bang for your buck. Nintendo could be shoveling money with their online service if they would actually just hurry up a little bit. Three years, and we're going to have three consoles available. You know, in, in the online service, that seems like ridiculous at this point, don't you think, Chris? Yeah, absolutely. Now, I'm I'm late to the party on this, so I'm I'm, I'm enjoying it, but you know, like it it really seems like a lot of untapped potential, like you said. Like they could be. It's nice, and I really really enjoy it. And for twenty dollars, you know, it's not like I'm missing. Not like I'm too perturbed about it, but I'm like, you could really tap into something, even if you hike up the price a little bit. I'm never really going to advocate for that. But I mean, there's just stuff that's just sitting there waiting to be done. Even alone, being able to replay uh, The Legend of Zelda, Oracle of Seasons and Oracle of Ages, you know, the two Game Boy Color exclusive uh, games that were developed by, I want to say, Konami. Is that accurate? I know that these were not first party developed by Nintendo. They actually had uh, another developer actually develop these, but they were very, very good and a lot of fun to play. And they looked fantastic on the Game Boy Color. I haven't played these since ah, they came out in what, in 2001? It's been a long time. It's been 20 years. There's absolutely an audience for, for retro games to begin with. And so putting these kinds of games on Switch Online is just going to make it that much more valuable to gamers, I think, Chris. All right, Dave. So you've got a really wild story that um, that affects one of our, our previous guests, in fact. Yeah, it's really, really wild. So uh, there's all sorts of um, stuff going around social media right now about Action Labs Comics, an 11-year-old comic book publisher based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. They operate uh, as both Action Lab Entertainment, and they also have a mature reader pub, uh, imprint, basically, called Action Lab Danger Zone. Uh So apparently a lot of indie creators have been working with Action Lab and things have gone really sour for many of them. Several are trying to buy the rights to their books back because of how they felt that they have been wronged by Action Lab. We're talking stuff like 
late payments, missing payments, poor publishing plans, lack of communication. A lot of people are extremely upset. So just looking at, uh, you know, the Twitter sphere right now, you have, you know, uh, Matt Harding uh, tweeting uh, on September 1st, Action Labs hired me to write a three-issue comic for $10 a page and then colored for $15 a page. I did it because I thought it was my big break and I put so many good ideas into it. They canceled the comic right before it was about to be solicited with a one paragraph email. Uh, Jared Lujan is apparently really struggling with them as well. Uh, Several people have tweeted at him saying it's ridiculous that they are not even going to print his, uh, publish his book, but he's going to end up being like stuck with a, a tab of like, $3,000 or something. Tom Rogers tweeted regarding Action Lab comics on Herald, Lovecraft and Tesla. I have drawn pencils and inks, a total of 264 interior pages, 15 covers and colored seven pages and one cover over the span of its entire publication. I've been paid $4,972 and 73 sense for the aforementioned art which is ridiculous for over 250 pages of interior art and covers uh it's pretty mind-blowing what seems to be going on here and not a whole lot of people seem to be reporting on this i mean if you just jump on google and you know you google action labs there's very little that that comes up as far as news goes um rich johnson of bleeding cool uh has actually spoken to brian seaton uh, who um, is the current Action Lab president. And, you know, Seton kind of blames a lot of the lack of communication on the fact that, you know, COVID occurred and then he actually resigned from the CEO position for health reasons. And then the previous president resigned at around the same time and there was really no clear leadership structure. So, you know, there's there's a lot in the way of, well, you know, this is why it's happening but there's not a lot in the way of um, how to f- how they're planning on fixing this situation. Um, Johnston asks on Bleeding Cool, what do you what do you think can be done to restore relations with these creators? And Seaton's answer is basically uh, communication. But as far as you know, the, these incredibly low page rates, apparently the the missing payments. Uh, the the lack of publishing plans. There's really not much said to some about some of these concerns. It's a pretty wild story. Uh, Chris, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so I'm actually in contact with Jared Lujan. Uh, our listener, our, our listeners will remember him being a friend of the show for Twin Blades. Um, also, uh, claimed writer of Dryfoot. So I'm actually in contact with him at this moment, trying to get him on the show to kind of give us a, a behind the scenes perspective and his personal experience with this but this is just this is just mind-blowing that you know with independent publishers like this you know it's it's like a, a small business if you will understand that but like to to use covid and like as this throwaway excuse i mean we 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 criticize disney for that you know with the whole scarlett johansson situation i mean oh like, yeah every i mean everybody's dealing with this but you know I'm, I'm always just like an upfront person. Like if you have a problem, just express it and don't, you know, leave it unsaid so we can deal with it accordingly. But when you kind of, when you kind of hide things from people, especially when it comes to an agreed upon amount, um, 
and, and people's livelihoods. Like these are how people make a living. So, I mean, like you have to be upfront with that. And when you're, and when you're secretive like that, it just exacerbates the problem and, and it's even worse. And, and the lack of reporting on this is, is disconcerting as well. Um, it really, it really makes me sad that so much of this is flying under the radar. I totally agree. I'm really waiting for somebody to, you know, sink their teeth in the story a little bit. And I will say, I think that that is something, um, lacking across the board over sort of the wider range of, um, comics journalism, I guess, is that we're getting a lot of, you know, interviews and a lot of promotional material and a lot of, you know, goody good coverage for, you know, publishers and stories and creators, but unless it's like huge, mind-blowing stuff that kind of blows up the internet, you know, very rarely does somebody sit down and, and seriously, you know, look into these kinds of allegations or investigate them. There's a real uh, lack of, you know, digging in to the comic book industry. I think that is something that uh, something like the video game industry gets uh, a lot more of. There's a lot more, you know, digging in behind the scenes. Uh, I mean, for crying out loud, even even Bloomberg has like you know video game reporting now, um, but the comic books in the comic book industry does not seem to get that, and I think that is that is a crying shame, really, Chris. Yeah, there are. I mean, like there are a precious few. Like I have, um, I have certain websites that I follow, like Comics XF. They do a great job reporting, but I mean, like there are just you know, a, a startup themselves, like trying to report on things. But when you go to the big wigs, like comicbook.com and CBR, you know, they're, they're only interested in like the mainstream clickbait kind of stuff. They're interested in the MCU, the DCEU, the film universes, uh, anime, the stuff that's really going to get traffic to their website. So a lot of this stuff is going to fly under the radar unless, you know, somehow, some way somebody catches hold of it. And see, this is actually this is actually a pet peeve of mine because to me, um, what what's happened to the news industry in general being very click oriented and you know long form journalism and really you know investigating over the long term and digging into a story is kind of falling to the wayside slowly. But I think the comic book industry in particular would really benefit from that kind of coverage, Chris. Alrighty, folks, that's it for Nerd News. Stick around after our first break. We're going to be back with, just imagine, Stan Lee created Superman, Wonder Woman, and Batman. All right, folks, welcome back. Here we are. We are going to dig into that very brief time when Stan Lee was not under contract with Marvel, and DC snatched him up for a series of one-shots, allowing Stan Lee to reimagine DC Comics' most famous superheroes with the help of some of the best artists in the business at the time. Uh, we today decided to focus very specifically on DC's trinity of Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. So let's go ahead and start with Just Imagine Stan Lee created Wonder Woman. So uh, this particular one shot was actually uh, written by Lee, illustrated by Jim Lee, uh, legend uh, by any standard. And uh, the book, according to Goodreads, 
is summarized as such. We meet Maria Mendoza, a young idealist angered by the way her homeland of Peru has been stripped of its ancient treasures and its people tortured by a sinister individual. When Maria discovers an ancient staff which transforms her into a paragon of power, the likes of which the world has never known, she becomes the only force powerful enough to save her culture. All right, Chris, what did you think of Stan Lee's version of Wonder Woman? Uh, so of the three, I'm you know going to go ahead and throw this out there. This was far and away my favorite of the three. Um Artist uh, and writer Terry Bloss, who is currently working on Reptile, did a, a reimagining of Wonder Woman, Batman, and, and Superman, the, the, the trinity, if you will, of DC Comics as Aztec warriors. So I actually have in my classroom on display his art of Wonder Woman depicted as an Aztec woman. And, you know, while they're not the same civilization, seeing the Incan mythology, uh, South American culture, Peruvian culture represented here was a real nice change of pace you know we usually only hear about hellenistic mythology greco-roman stuff you know with with north norse mythology also being very very popular not a lot of love for for aztec incan mayan mythology so just seeing the sun god the incan sun god uh, on comic panels was really really cool um i think the jim lee's art as always, is just impeccable here. Um, you know, also, you know, seeing Latinx, you know, characters on on center stage is really, really cool. And I know that while clunky a lot of times throughout his history, Stan has always tried to kind of push it forward with when it comes to, you know, representation. But I, I really, really enjoyed this one. It really gave me um, like Indiana Jones vibes, like archaeologist Steve Trevor's uh, Steve Trevor in in this story is an archaeologist, um, a little bit um, a little bit Zorro vibes, um, you know, as Maria representing the population and, and and what have you. So I really really enjoyed this one. Um, it was really fun, really whimsical, and like I said, it's probably of the three. It was far and away my favorite. I really, really have to say that I loved the redesign of Wonder Woman for this book. There's something about that outfit with like that white, those white pants or something that just really worked for me visually. I really, really like the look of Wonder Woman, which as we'll go on, you will find that not every redesign is as successful, but this one looks really, really good in my book. And I will say, yeah, the, the book is good looking. I think Jim Lee hits a stride again here, as he always does. It's just a very good looking book. And yeah, I'm, I will echo what you said just about, you know, bring some Mesoamerican culture in there, you know, and, and you know, you're right. A lot of the times the mythologies that, uh, you know, literature and comic books focus on are very much of the cracker variety. Like, you know, how <laughs> wide can your mythology get? Let's go ahead and go north. So it doesn't get much wider than that. Um, so, you know, talking about some, some you know, Native American mythology is, is, is a, you know, as an absolutely fantastic idea. Um, the, the whole take on this book is a lot of fun. And and having Steve Trevor not be, you know, just uh, the the soldier that pops up and, like, gets washed ashore on Paradise Island and all that, but, like, he has a much more clearer purpose in the story with, you know, his connection with the villain and his job as archaeologist. I actually thought it was really sad that they basically, like, offed him 
right away. Like if this would have ended up, you know, like as an ongoing series, if you imagine it as an ongoing series, I think this version of Steve Trevor probably could have held his own long-term in a comic book series with this Wonder Woman much, much better than, you know, the actual Steve Trevor, which always seems to kind of get shunned to the side because nobody quite knows what to do with him. And I don't think we really have that problem with this version of Wonder Woman. Plus, I really like the characterization. There's a passion uh, in, in this version of Wonder Woman that I really appreciate. And there's also, I think, Chris, uh, maybe this is something that resonated with you. You know, there there are shades of Thor here, especially early mm-hmm. Thor, you know, when you have a, a human being that has to be, you know, in the contact walking with... Stick. Some... Yeah, the walking stick staff. I immediately thought of Donald Blake, yeah. That is exactly right. There's very much th- that part of, you know, Stanley's. um you know, vibe that pops up here too. I think it works extremely well. And I actually would love to see more of this version of Wonder Woman. Now, I did a little bit of research and it appears that this version of the character popped up in a recent uh, DC Comics miniseries called Dark Knight's Metal. Um, and I'm this kind of a multiverse story, and I'm I'm really pleased, you know, that the multiversal structure allows DC Comics to whip out a character that was so one-off as this Wonder Woman actually feature her again in a, an appearance. I'd like to see more for Chris, really. Yeah, I will say that like the one kind of nitpick that I have criticism is um, Mr. Willard, the tabloid type guy uh, at the end. It was 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 quite cringy and it was very much of its time you know this was written 2001 2002 um and and sometimes you know if if we're being completely honest i i really struggle reading stan's work as far as it comes towards women um and how they're represented on the page um and their voice and their lack of agency and how they just swoon towards the man in their lives and so, like, it was a really breath of fresh air to see this strong female protagonist that that avoided some of those tropes and then kind of fell victim to, to them towards just those last couple of pages uh, with this tabloid guy as she's working with him in order to maintain her secret identity. So that part left me left me a little bit irritated, but the rest of it was a whole lot of fun. And I kind of I kind of liked what they did with the stakes. Like it was it was pretty abrupt and I had to adjust for a minute, but like a lot of people were dying just like right off the bat. So like that I think that really added to like the adventure, the tales of suspense aspect of it, if you will. So that part I really dug though. And it does, you know, it's undeniably a bit tropey in places. I mean, uh, how often do we have to have a superhero whose parent gets murdered? You know, um, that happens a lot. Oh, my, my parents died. Now I'm going to be a superhero. That it happens an awful lot in books. But, you know, it is still Stan Lee. And there's, there is something classical here in, in the storytelling. You, you definitely note his touch. You can kind of, you get the vibe of it. You know, there's, there is some... There's an early Marvel vibe to this in some places, and which is not necessarily a bad thing because a lot of those stories hold up uh, at least to some extent. Um, but yeah, this I, my final verdict is I really enjoyed this one. I thought this was this was a lot of fun. Yeah. Also, it has like a really cool follow up story that teases Hawkman and Hawkwoman, not Hawkgirl, Hawkwoman, as, as they detail it in the pages here. So like. I, I'm really intrigued to read more, uh, read ahead if, if if this story does continue. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty psyched as well, and and there is a lot more 
uh, to this, you know, just imagine series. I mean, I have an, an omnibus sitting here that is just like a giant paperweight. So I think we, we're going to have a lot of reading material out of this. All right, Chris, so that, that gets us through Wonder Woman. I think we started off on the right foot uh, because the other two stories uh, get a little bit more problematic. Um, so let's go ahead and talk Superman. Uh, here is uh, Stan Lee's version of Superman, a summary according to Goodreads. Salden, a brave but puny policeman on an alien world where science has made its ordinary people supermen by earthly standards, must track down an escaped criminal named Gorok. Journeying in an experimental spacecraft, the bitter enemies are marooned on Earth. Arriving in Los Angeles, he discovers that Earth's environment gives him abilities far beyond those of ordinary humans and decides to devote himself to solving the world's problems so that Earth can focus on technological advancement and provide him with a trip back home. Talent agent Lois Lane quickly dubs him Superman. Ah, Chris, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna definitely let you go ahead and start with oh this one. God. What are your thoughts on Stanley Superman? Okay, so it was by far and away the weakest of the three. Um it was just like you said, it was problematic. It was it was weird. It like I don't I guess Stan, God love him. Um it, it was very reminiscent of like nineteen thirties and forties comics of like flash gordon i guess um i i kept thinking of duck dodgers of the 24th and a half century from (laughs) that's that's it kept going back to that it's just like really weird type sci-fi you know which usually you can get me to buy in with sci-fi but those was just some weird choices i thought the character design on sardin's wife was awesome though um gave me real megan uh from excalibur uh, vibes with with the hairstyle the cheekbones um unfortunately she dies um so it, it was just really weird um i think the thing that bothered me the most about this story was the depiction of lois lane you know even with my limited exposure to the character i've fallen in love with at least at least the um the comic representation of the character, not so much Amy Adams, bless her heart. She didn't have much to do in those movies. Um, I'm a fan of uh, Elizabeth Tullock's performance with, um, you know, some of the small screen stuff I've seen. Um, But that like, like dog with a bone type reporter, like really relentless in the pursuit of doing the right thing from a journalistic perspective, holding feet to holding the feet to the fire of, of the authority figures, uh, the people in power, and it really kind of turned it on its head and like it's Lois Lane in name only. Like she's this kind of scuzzy talent agent that's all about the bottom line and making money off of Superman. So like that one was probably the most problematic and most bothersome aspect of this story. Um, I thought Sardin came across as like just a cardboard cutout. Everything the superman haters say that superman is so it, not a whole lot of personality or depth here um so yeah not a lot that oh there the, one of my favorite uh panels was superman is trying to find his name so he just looks at an ice cream truck and then uh he looks at the street sign next to it and one side of the 
it's like Clark Parker ice cream or no Clark Peter Clark ice cream and then Parker Kent streets like intersection. So obviously the as subtle as a gun Peter Parker homage right next to Clark Kent. So yeah, did not enjoy this one very much at all, unfortunately. So interesting, uh, you know, here is I think you actually hit the nail on the head in that there's a lot going on here that is reminiscent of like 1930s, 1940s sci-fi, which is interesting because, you know, Superman really originated in that time period. So doing sort of an homage to that kind of storytelling style is not necessarily a bad idea. There's even uh, I'm going to I'm sure I'm going to butcher his name, but John Buscema. Buscema. uh, Buscema. Thank you so much. Yeah, I always can rely on you to... My Italian, no. <laughs> my horrible pronunciation. So John Buscema here really even seems to kind of um, channel sort of an old school mentality with his art. And I think it, it works quite well. I think my real problem with this is that everybody is so darn selfish in this book. And that is hard to wrap your head around when really... These are the characters, you know, Superman, Lois Lane, that are probably the least selfish, you know, in, in you know, the original DC canon. So, you know, I have Superman who has all these powers, but he does good because just because he thinks it's right. And then, you know, Stan Lee's version of Superman does good because he thinks that if he cuts down on crime, then humans can maybe, you know, accomplish better science faster and he can, you know, get them to build something to get him back home. Um, and Lois Lane, as you already mentioned, is very much only concerned with the bottom line. So it feels to me like, um, whereas the Wonder Woman book, I think, tried to capture at least some kind of essence of what makes a Wonder Woman a Wonder Woman, I think the Superman book really fell short in that regard. Now, I will freely say, I think the design of the suit is actually really cool, Um and interesting too, with the idea that like part of it is like a flight harness that let him fly on his on his home world. I think there's some cool stuff there, uh, and the outfit is very neat. Um, but you know, even like this little detour that they do in the book, where he becomes like a circus performer for like a hot second because he needs <laughs> money, it's just so out of left field. You know, like I need some money. I know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go to the circus. Like, that's not really my first instinct. I don't think that would be most people's first instinct. Let's go to the circus and make some money. But it's just, it's such a bizarre little detour. And even Lois, you know, appearing on his doorstep as this talent agent, it just seems like, you know, every everything on the alien planet kind of at least somewhat clicked. But then as soon as they get to Earth, the, the whole thing just derailed. I even, you know, I like the setup, you know, in theory. I like the notion of, like, you know, there's this bald villain, shades of Lex Luthor, you know, who who was incarcerated by this this cop on an alien world, and then they both get stranded on Earth, and he's, like, in pursuit of this criminal that, you know, killed a loved one of his and that he had previously captured and put away, and then there's the question of how they get home. Like, it's a very um, rich setup for for drama you know it's just the, it, it i i don't want to say it looks good on paper because we saw it on paper so let's say it looks good in theory but the execution i think left a lot to be desired chris yeah and i will say i was a fan of the art i'm a big fan of both bushemas john and sal um sal's work on superior Sp- or yeah superior spider-man with um 
the JM DeMatteis is some of my favorite comics ever, but um, it, it was just the, the only, I will say the only thing that I found tr- truly problematic with the art were these weird gaucho pants that Gal Rock was wearing. It was really weird. Like he looked like he got them out of his sister's closet or something. Like they were way <laughs> too short. He was showing off some shin, like as he's going around. It's really hard to be menacing when you're wearing women's pants like that, like um, that are way too short. Like, so that was distracting a bit. But other than that, um, I really was compelled to the, the, I think the one bright spot of this, and I totally agree with like when they got to earth, it kind of fell off the rails. I was intrigued, um, on the alien planet when they got to earth, like all these hijinks were just really weird and strange. Um, I will say that the one part that really intrigued me, and this is a common thread that I, I look forward to following as these stories continue, um, is the uh, Dominic Dark kind of thread, almost like a kindred type of thread for Amazing Spider-Man fans, like this big bad that's kind of throughout and like you're sparsing it along just a little like a like breadcrumb trail a little bit here, a little bit there. So I'm interested to see where that goes. Oh, I am too. I will also say, though, and I think this must be said, what was the deal with uh, Stanley absolutely refusing to name the alien world? Like, yeah. why can't it just be Krypton if you're doing a riff on Superman? Or like a di- like something that's named after a different element or something? Like, you couldn't pronounce it anyway, so I'm not telling you where he's from. It's kind of a weird... I don't know. That was an odd way to start yeah. the story. I, I, I was a little... I was a little taken aback by that move. But other than that, the stuff on the alien planet, for the most part, you know, clicked somewhat. But man, that Earth stuff did not, Chris. No, not at all. (laughs) All right. Well, we have one more. And this one was, in a lot of ways, um, probably the most intriguing and set up. Although some of the choices made, I I probably would have not um, taken. Uh, but it is very, very interesting. And that's, of course, uh, just imagine Stan Lee created Batman. Uh, in this particular uh, story, uh, according to Goodreads, we meet Wayne Williams, an African-American man, frame, man framed for a robbery, consumed with thoughts of revenge against those who framed him. Wayne is freed from prison with a powerful physique and a bold new purpose. Um, and a very, very, very interesting uh, suit. I will say that as well. So, Chris, what is your take on Stanley's Batman? Um, well, first and foremost, I, I didn't know he was African American, so like that that was really interesting choice coloring wise. Um, he had he did have some features that like speculate, you know, caused me to speculate that he might be um, multiracial, but I did not know that. Um, I I would have called this Amazing Fantasy sixteen uh, because it is heavily derivative of uh peter parker's uh peter parker's origin story um it is a lot of the same type of stuff he goes on to be a professional wrestler that's how he makes all of his money and his billions um so this and i will say this is the first one i read and like as soon as i opened it and i saw the the extensive prologue um the the wordiness uh, not not as wordy as stan is is known to be um certainly not claremont-esque but it's it, it's it's reminds me what i love about reading stanley stories it's almost like almost like shakespearean level of um of 
of writing uh, in a comic book. So that really kind of scratches that itch of like the, the, the lover of classical literature that I am. So I, I did enjoy this book, even if it was basically just switching out a spider for a bat. Like it is, it's extremely similar to that. Um, similarly to the Wonder Woman book, it, it plays fast and loose with the ideas of stakes and, um, and killing off characters. And, you know, like it, it gets real, real quick. Um, I thought it was very much written of its time. It, it kind of had its, its feet in two pools, if you will. Like it was very much like, like I said, derivative of amazing Spider-Man. So it felt like a sixties or seventies book, but then like they tried to make it 2001 slash 2002 by making the villains name hands with a Z. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Oh my God. So, like I overall I enjoyed it. It was just like, okay, this is it's like um like a lesser quality episode of a show that you enjoy. So um I really did appreciate like the story of Wayne Williams. Um but in that aspect it fell kind of flat. I kind of dug this suit. It was it was horrifying. Um so like it would definitely inspire fear on the enemies, but um it was also the ending was a little bit lackluster. Um, so I, I wanted a little bit more of that, but I overall I enjoyed it. Yeah, so this one falls kind of in the middle for me uh, between the Superman and the Wonder Woman books, whereas the Wonder Woman book I really enjoyed and the Superman book I really this it didn't work for me. There are things here in this Batman book that work, at least for me, and then there are things that that did not. Yeah, so I really like the idea of him being sort of a self-made millionaire rather than, you know, inheriting the wealth. There's something really appealing about, you know, Batman not just physically training himself and mentally training himself, but also, you know, um, making his own money rather than just inheriting it. I really like that. I really like the notion of an African-American Batman, although, again, I will echo what you said and that the coloring, I don't think, made that necessarily very clear. Uh Joe uh, Kubert's art here is actually really, really good. And I really enjoyed that as well. You know, I don't really like the suit, though. I think, you know, going with with a Batman look that is like hyper-realistic looking, like trying to actually look like a giant bat, you know, especially the helmet face mask (laughs) piece with the bat nose and the fangs. Like, it's it's a little little much, I think. Uh, in the context of of a traditional superhero story. Like, let me put it this way. Um, If Batman would have been originally designed like this, and that's how, how it would have been, how Batman would have been released. I don't think uh, he would have lasted as long. I don't think the look (laughs) necessarily screams iconic. Whereas I think the Wonder Woman design is fantastic. And even the Superman design is pretty good. This Batman look really rubs me the wrong way. I, I noticed the shades of Spider-Man in this one as, that you did as well. I also noticed some some hints of Luke Cage there with the whole, you know, uh, in, wrongfully imprisoned stuff. So um, I, also I'm not horribly happy that it's kind of, you know, going into, into stereotype territory a little bit on the one hand. Um, on the other hand, 
I really like the Count of Monte Cristo vibe that I feel they yes, were going for. Yes, my favorite book ever. I was about I'm to say that. a big fan as well, yeah. And so that, you know, what if the story of Batman was the Count of Monte Cristo? Like, what, what if he, you know, his whole training and everything is not to rid the world of crime, but to find this one guy who, who wronged him and, and take that sucker down? Like, that is an interesting take on a Batman story. Um in execution, maybe not perfect, but I think the guts of a really, really interesting take on Batman are definitely here. Yeah. Also, can we talk about how absolutely terrifying this bat's tongue is and how weird it is that he actually oh. keeps him as a pet? So- oh, it's just so weird. <laughs> I always thought that was one of the weirder parts, even if like Straczynski's run on Spider-Man when Spidey started like you know, trying to talk to spiders and would like use them and like, I'm like, dude, they're, they're not his sidekicks. That's a little weird, you know? I mean, with Squirrel Girl, it, it works a little bit to have a squirrel running around with her, but Batman, I don't think should probably have a bat pet. It's just a little odd. I think my biggest critique of this, the thing that rubbed me the wrong way, and we referenced this earlier, is Stan's depiction of women um you know oh the, yes oh yes the, the, it was it was highly problematic here um so you know this this woman nita who you know is the love interest of the big bad but like also wayne is kind of into and then uh also his mother is just this like stereotypical oh like woe is me mother who just dies of a broken heart padme style and then this woman is just like staying around with a man that she doesn't want to marry. It is, it's, it's really, really dated. Um, and to have been written in 2001, 2002 is just really unfortunate. Yeah, I can agree with that. There are definitely some very, very old school tendencies that I don't think Stan ever quite shook. And they do definitely come out in some of these issues. All right, Chris. So having reviewed Stan Lee's Trinity, Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman, what are sort of your overall thoughts about this endeavor of trying to read this whole series? Well, I'm intrigued, like I said before, on this Dominic Dark, not Damien Dark. I keep having to tell myself it's not Damien Dark. Um, I'm really intrigued by that whole storyline, how that's going to continue to play out. And then I'm also interested to see the reimagining of these other characters. And they certainly can't be any worse than uh, the Superman one, which was just plain weird. Um, so it can only go up from there. Uh, the, the Wonder Woman one is going to be tough to beat, even with that kind of wet fart of an ending with that tabloid guy getting all the glory. But um, I'm, I'm super excited to see where we go from here. Yeah, you know, I'll echo that. This was, you know, not not awful. Let's put it that way. Besides the Superman one, but the Batman uh, reimagining certainly had some interesting ideas. Even the Superman uh, reimagining the the beginning of it on on the alien planet had some nice stuff going on. But that, you know, that Wonder Woman issue, I think, for the most part, uh, was a home run and was the one version of the character that I would actually want to see more of. So yeah. I'm I'm very interested to see where else this goes, Chris. Uh, one and one more point on the Batman thing. I know one of the biggest, you know, kind of running jokes about Batman is he's this billionaire who dresses up in cosplay and beats the crap out of criminals instead of working behind the scenes to better crime in Gotham. I think this story, believe it or not, kind of works better explaining the quote unquote history of violence and like why he's prone to use those types of methods better than you know this elitist coming down from on high to beat the crap out of people 
yeah yeah it's it, it kind of changes the equation when the the person is you know like i mentioned earlier a self-made uh success rather than yeah like upper class has to come down and beat up the lower class there is there is a certain amount of um equaling that out a little bit and making it a little more palatable i think i, I totally agree with that chris all right, that's our first look at Stan Lee's creations of the DC Universe and Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. Stay tuned for future episodes where we're going to dive further into Stan Lee's DC reimaginings. For now, though, let's go ahead and head to a break. And when we come back, it's going to be time for some nerd commendations. Stick around. Ladies and gentle people, we're back. It's time for everybody's favorite segment of the Nerd Byword. I'm, of course, talking about... That's right, Nerd Commendation time. Chris, what are you commending this week? Oh, it's by far the best comic I read this week, and it is Tom Taylor and Ivan Coelho's Dark Ages number one. This miniseries is what would happen if all electricity went out in the Marvel Universe and were forced to return to the Dark Ages. So you've got a steam-powered Iron Man. Um, Tom immediately won me over, though, because the very first page, Pete and MJ are assumingly married. They have a baby girl, a fiery redhead May, who is on the ceiling. They are having pizza and drinks with Luke Cage and Jessica Jones and Danny. Um, just setting up that. And then all hell breaks loose. The spider people, uh, Miles and Gwen as well, immediately feel something's triggered. It's a great feature um, by Ludella Lafayette, Moon Girl. Uh, and her devil dinosaur. I will say that the the mutants featured in here, it was a little bit odd because it was very much out of place with what's going on in Krakoa right now. So I'm taking this as an alternate universe type of situation. Um, Fantastic Four is heavily involved. Um, but basically what happens is this living machine um, threatened to unmake it's it's called the unmaker was going to destroy the universe and then he is defeated but cannot be destroyed so he is buried in the center of the earth in a deep slumber but now he has awakened and in order to uh take him out they have to do this grand emp pulse that wipes out all of electric all electricity so kind of the return to the dark ages so it's really at least what I've been told. I have not read Deceased, but you know, Tom really got a lot of acclaim for himself writing Deceased over at DC. A lot of post-apocalyptic type vibes from that is what I'm told by other people who have read it. So I'm gonna have to check out Deceased, but like it's really interesting finally getting I, I love series like this and Spider-Man Life Story, which is another future nerd commendation. I've totally forgot I haven't nerd commended is where we get to move on. Like, we've talked about this a lot. Peter Parker, 
um, as my friend Ash from X of Words would say, is the Peter Pan of the Marvel Universe. He's never allowed to grow up. So being able to see these characters, even if it's an alternate universe, grow up and not just do the same old things, working the same old jobs and, and actually progressing. It's really fascinating to see and like having some actual stakes. So I absolutely love this issue and I cannot wait to follow this series. Man, I don't know how this one slipped past me. Um, I remember reading about it that when it was announced and I completely missed out on the fact that the sucker has actually been, uh, you know, released. So I am totally here for this. This sounds exactly up my alley. Plus, I'm a big fan of Taylor's anyways. I like his work generally. So, yeah, I'm, I'm here for this, Chris. You actually, you know, kind of won me over instantly and I cannot wait to pick this up. So just imagine like a little bit darker tinged uh, Amazing Spider-Man Renew Your Vows. So if you're a big Spidey fan, definitely check this one out. Yeah, I'm here for this. All right, Dave, you are heading to the final frontier in a nerd competition that I'm very excited to check out already. Yeah, so I have actually in a previous episode talked about uh, the first part to this, and I'm finally in volume two. And that is, of course, the 50-year mission. Um, which is all about uh, being the complete uncensored, unauthorized oral history of Star Trek, written by Edward Gross and uh, Mark Altman. And I'm going to tell you right now, uh, I absolutely adored the first volume. It covered the original series and the original series-based six movies. And then it ended. And so the second volume really has its work cut out for it because it covers the next generation television series and the next generation movies. It then goes on to do Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and ends with the uh, J.J. Abrams movies. So no Discovery or anything like that. This uh, this book came out before uh, Discovery was a thing. But let me tell you, I am not, uh, and I have to freely admit this, I'm not the biggest Next Generation fan. And I think, actually, that this book helped me understand why that is a little bit. Um, But I still found all the -the behind-the-scenes stuff extremely fascinating, especially considering that uh, Gene Roddenberry was still involved in development of that show. And one of the edicts, uh, apparently, uh, that Gene Roddenberry sort of handed down was that there really shouldn't be any interpersonal conflict within the crew because we have, as human beings, evolved past that. And so to me, that explains a lot why The Next Generation didn't resonate as much with me unless it was like a Wharf episode because there was plenty of interpersonal conflict when the Klingons were involved. But the humans to me always came across as a little aloof, a little separate, and a little uh, mannequin-like, not not quite human, because they never argue, they never fuss, there's never really any conflict between them, and real people have conflicts. And that is, I think, why uh, Deep Space Nine resonated so much more with me. You know, the show was sort of put into motion after the passing of Gene Roddenberry, and the writing staff on that show very much was trying to sort of stretch the rules a little bit without breaking them. And there was plenty of conflict there. And then the people feel more real to me and more fully realized. So I've not completely finished this book yet. I'm in the uh, Voyager section right now, but just based alone on, on the deep, deep exploration of the next generation and of deep space nine alone, I already have to just go ahead 
a nerd commend this book. It is just as good as round one. Um, it covers a much bigger swath of Trek history, but at no point did I feel so far like anything was shortchanged. Uh, the Deep Space Nine segments, especially really, really good, going from development, from casting, shakeups in the writing staff, how the, the long-term sort of stuff was developed, That you know, the ongoing threads. Um, all of that stuff is here and discussed in great detail. So, yeah, I mean... As far as like the history of Star Trek goes, I would say this is about as definite as you can get is this two-volume set of the 50-year mission. I think each volume clocks in at somewhere between 500 and 600 pages, and I have not been bored a single time yet, Chris. It's absolutely fascinating. So I am a big fan of Next Generation, but that totally makes sense um, hearing you say that. Um, and I think some of the more exciting episodes of The Next Generation, um, my favorite one, I think, is when uh, Captain Picard goes back home to France and really finally admits the issues and the pressures and the strain that he has. And he stops being this upstanding perfectionist perfect character and he actually shows some emotion and that's when i really fell in love with the character so that that particular episode is one of my all-time favorites and it's really funny you mentioned that chris because if i remember correctly from the book that was actually a ron moore penned episode he would later go on to write for deep space nine and then would later reinvent battlestar galactica and he apparently had to fight pretty hard for that episode um, because apparently there were a lot of people behind the scenes who didn't think it was it was next generation enough and there was too much conflict in there between people. And, and he had to fight pretty hard to make sure that that episode gets made, apparently. Yeah, and so it's interesting um, because, and, we, and we've detailed this before, I am still, I'm, 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 it's like a fine wine. I am taking my time with this, but I'm still in the midst of watching Deep Space Nine for the first time. And I'm only halfway through season four and it's already far and away as much as I love Discovery and, and all the other new shows as well, it is far and away my favorite Star Trek, and it's not close. So Deep Space Nine, I, I love, I adore every one of those characters, how complex and complicated they are. Um, everybody, I, I love their journey and like how it, it's incredible to have such an expansive cast, and yet you feel so plugged into them. Um, it's just, it's just magnificent. And, and, and it is absolutely without fail. One of my favorite pieces of nerd media pop culture ever. I love deep space nine and I can't wait. I've heard such great things about Voyager. I really need to pick up the pace a little bit because I really want to get to Voyager. I will say this, whenever you get done with deep space nine, there is a, there is a nerd by word episode and us just sitting down and really talking yes. about deep space nine front to back ones, because I have rewatched that show now twice straight through from episode one till the final episode. And every couple of years, I feel like I need to start revisiting it because there's just something so resonant about that show to me. So I, I really cannot wait to sit down and just talk all the little nuances about deep space nine with you. I think that's going to be a lot of fun. So I was already like, had already decided the first three seasons it was my favorite star trek ever and then season four comes along and my all-time favorite star trek character period Worf, joins the cast i'm like like this is a perfect show 
All righty, folks. Well, that is it for another episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Uh, as always, we are so very pleased that you've decided to join us for an hour of absolute nerding out. If you like what you heard today, please be sure to get on your favorite podcasting platform. Give us a rating or review um, and just you know subscribe and follow us we always have a new episode every monday you can find us wherever podcasts are available including our very own website nerdbyword.com you can also check us out on social media at nerdbyword on twitter and instagram or individually at that nerd dave and that nerd chris respectively um, and as always stay well and stay nerdy the Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.